It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. We do a ton of research here on This Might Get Uncomfortable because we like to learn, we like to grow, we like to expand, we like to challenge ourselves, make ourselves uncomfortable from time to time. Perhaps there's information out there that conflicts with our worldview, but we want to know, we want to get cracked open and expanded. And in that, there's a lot of things that float across my desk, Whitney's desk, the Wellevator desk. There's actually no, yeah, there is. I was going to say there's no actual Wellevator desk. There is a Wellevator desk when we were doing in-person podcast recordings. There is an official Wellevator desk. None of that matters. What I'm saying is there's all kinds of interesting research articles and news articles that float our way. One that floated through my inbox today was an eye popper. It was one of those cartoon moments, Whitney, that was like, boing, 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 boing. you know, like my eyes were like, ooh, like kind of that, mm, this is interesting. Like the googly eyed, you know, cartoon, like, boing, 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 you know, eyes popping out of the head. So here's the headline. And I get clickbaitiness. I get wanting, and, and it worked because I clicked. And then I was like, holy shit, we need to talk about this. Headline, the clickbaity headline, which led to a pretty substantive article, is this. Working 55 plus hours a week kills 745,000 people a year, according to a brand new research, the first of its kind, by the World Health Organization. Before we dive into this, first of all, the reason I clicked on it is, A, you and I have talked a lot about the physical, emotional, and spiritual ramifications of burnout, of stress, of overwork. The interesting thing about this study, which I found through Forbes.com, is this is the first actual, apparently according to the article, clinical licensed research study to study the health effects of overwork. And it's pretty frightening. And I want to say we're not sharing this to be fear-mongering. We're not sharing this to be anti-work. What we're sharing this is to, I think, create more awareness and discuss it today to talk about the very real world health implications of overwork and how common it is for people to be working more than 55 hours a week. I don't think that's unusual at all. So digging into this article, Whitney, it talks about how the COVID pandemic and the gig worker economy, for anyone who's not familiar with the gig worker economy is, it's basically independent contractors or freelance workers who work for, you know, for instance, I do my jingles on Fiverr. Some people are Uber drivers. Some people deliver for Postmates. The gig economy is where you're not an actual employee. You don't get benefits. You're hired as an independent contractor. And that teleworking is also making it worse. So the World Health Organization is actually... I don't even know what this means, but they're calling for employers and world governments to cap working hours in order to safeguard employee health. That was the first thing that I was like, like, I don't want to sound pessimistic, Whitney, but, you know, good luck trying to convince 
a very wealthy multinational organization to curb their employees' hours. I think we can agree before we move through this article that I think it's probably, for the most part, in the benefit of large corporations to work their employees as long and as hard as possible. And I remember the first time as a tangent, before we dive deeper into this, when I went to the Googleplex for the first time, Whitney, it was 2006. And I went to the Google headquarters in Mountain View in Silicon Valley. And at first tour of the Googleplex, right, it was unbelievable. They had on-site massages. They had arcade games. They had pool tables. They had these cool, cozy, futuristic pods. Like if you can imagine an adult version of the kind of little, I don't even know what you call this, beds or sleeping nooks that we get like for our cats, you know, the ones that look like little caves. They had human versions of that. They had massage. They had a farmer's market once a week. You could get your oil changed and your car worked on. You could get your hair cut. On and on and on. I mean, essentially talking to Google employees, the the list of benefits and the list of things that you could access, organic food 24-7, coconut water stocked in, in refrigerators. I mean, it was like unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like it. But then we have to ask ourselves, why is part of it that a company like Google and others who have adopted these approaches want their employees to thrive? Certainly. I don't discount that. However, when you have sleeping pods and arcade games and organic coconut water and as much as food as you want to eat throughout the day and massages, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's because they want to keep you on the campus as long as possible. The idea is you don't need to go home to sleep, sleep in one of the sleeping pods. Your back hurts from overworking, go get a 30-minute massage. So there's two sides of the coin with this. So I think it's interesting that this article comes out that working over 55 hours is detrimental to people's health. When corporations, Whitney, are actively encouraging their employees to stay on site as long as humanly possible. Now, of course, the pandemic's kind of changed all that, right? But I just, I don't have a lot of faith that companies are going to actively curb the amount of hours their employees are going to work. How does that, before we dive deeper into the intricacies of, of the health things, like how does that land for you? I mean, it, it seems that overworking, again, 55 hours is not uncommon. That seems to be kind of pretty standard to me from the people I talk to who work. And so I just don't know if an article like this or comprehensive research is going to get anyone to actually change anything on a corporate level, I'm saying. I don't know either. I mean, I'm not sure I even have that awareness of what most people are working. I think most of my friends work for themselves. So I don't log my hours. I work I work a lot, but there are days where I don't work very much at all. So it fluctuates a lot for me. And it feels like my friends are either in a similar boat or they're overworking themselves, but they're doing it by choice. And they feel like they have more control and flexibility because they're self-employed or they're contract workers, you know, which I still think is technically self-employed. So I don't know, Jason, I don't have a ton of perspective on this, but it does lead me to a couple of things that I found interesting as well over the past probably week or so is that there has been a rise and a a movement actually in May 2021 of restaurant workers walking out and quitting their jobs. And there is a movement called We All Quit in which 
it's could be, I don't know if this is true statistically, but some people are saying that this is the largest labor movement in modern American history happening because a lot of fast food restaurants had to start putting up signs that they were closed because all their workers had quit. And it seems that there's now a trend where a lot of businesses are losing their workers because it's, I don't know if it's a generational thing or related to the pandemic, just some shift in consciousness where people are recognizing that they're getting way underpaid. They're not being treated well. And they're not interested. I think also one element of this, Jason, that you could speak to more than I could is the impacts of unemployment. Because I've seen this come up a lot as well, especially on platforms like TikTok, where people will openly talk about these things. You can get paid really well through unemployment. And especially during the pandemic, there were boosts in the amount of money that people were getting. And and a lot of people were realizing, I'm actually making more on unemployment than I am the job that I hate. So why should I continue working there? And some people could see that as like freeloading or whatever, but maybe it's just a rebellion against capitalism, against treatment, unfair treatment and poor wages and just all these shifts that are, are happening right now. And I'm curious what your perspective is on that, too, because it's not just about the time. It's about how much are you getting paid? You know, you bring up a place like Google. That's vastly different than working a minimum wage job or working a low level job, because at least the people at Google, for the most part, and other similar companies, they're getting all those cool perks. So, you know, if you're going to work this many hours, you might as well get incredible treatment and really good pay and probably amazing benefits and stock options. Like there's, there's a lot of great benefits that come with tech jobs and corporate jobs and they might be kind of golden handcuffs and these people might be working a lot, but it's very different than a lot of other jobs out there because employees don't necessarily get all of that treatment. So they're getting burnt out and they're not being paid very well and not being treated very well. The unemployment thing is interesting because, first of all, you know, there's a lot of interesting debate between economists of different lineages and, I suppose, educational backgrounds talking about whether or not all of these benefits over the course of the pandemic has helped or hindered employment status. Some say statistically it hasn't. Some say it does. And those are the people that want to revoke it. So I have been getting unemployment since the beginning of the pandemic. I actually got it retroactive through the beginning of March of last year. So for me, has it been getting paid more than my normal salary that I bring in, you know, doing my business, doing Wellevator? No, it's not. It's not. It's less. But it has allowed me to pay rent. It's allowed me to survive. It's allowed me to continue having a roof over my head, having food on the table, right? So that all goes away, again, unless more legislation gets passed. It's all due to go away on September 4th. So mentally, I'm also, you know, kind of forecasting in the future to what I'm going to do to replace that once it will likely go away at the beginning of September, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing too is, you know, I think a big part of this debate is also, you know, the minimum wage. And we thought that the minimum wage was going to get raised in this last piece of legislation. The I think it was the first 
bill that the Biden administration passed when it, it was in office and the minimum wage didn't get raised. And I've been seeing a lot of interesting posts about this, Whitney. One in particular that I've mentioned here before is um, Jack White's record label, Third Man Records. It's based out of Nashville and they have an office in Detroit. And I really dig Jack White, not only as a musician, but as a business person. And I think back in 2013, they mandated for the entire record company that everyone would have a minimum wage of $15 an hour, right? So people in the record plant making the vinyl records, people like you're not making less than $15 an hour if you work for third man records. And that was back in 2013. So I, I think it's cool to see businesses that are bucking the norm of, you know, yeah, we're not going to pay you $7.25 an hour. We're going to pay you double, you know, more than double that so you can have a living wage. I think that's cool as hell. So shout out to Jack White, shout out to all the other employers that are doing that. Because I don't understand how anyone in any major city could live on $7.25 an hour. We've talked about this in a previous episode, how Robert Reich put out this post showing all the cities in America where you could afford a two-bedroom apartment on minimum wage. And there was no city. There was zero cities. So I think this walkout, Whitney, is probably a response to the fact that people aren't even able to support themselves in a basic two-bedroom apartment in every major American city on minimum wage. Like, it's no wonder people are leaving. And if you think about these corporations that are profiting, you know, literally billions of dollars like McDonald's, they're really concerned with their stock price, but it's, it's at the expense of the living conditions of their employees. So yeah, I mean, people are walking out because they're sick of being taken advantage of. And there's a lot of elements to this, right? And I think also, you know, maybe people realize that there's something else other than, you know, literally killing themselves to try and keep up with this, you know? And I want to go back to that article really quickly to share a, a few points about this. So in this World Health Organization study that they did, which was with the International Labor Organization in conjunction with the WHO, again, 745,000 people died from stroke and heart disease as a result of working more than 55 hours a week, men made up the majority of these deaths. Almost three quarters were men, with people living in Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific significantly affected. So dig this. In most cases, these deaths were recorded years or even decades after people had worked and endured these long hours, with those working 55 or more hours a week being at an increased risk of dying of stroke, 35% increase in stroke, heart disease an increase of 17% compared to those working a 35 to 40 hour work week. I mean, damn, that's not insignificant. I mean, 35% higher chance of stroke and a 17% higher chance of heart disease. That's kind of shocking when you think about it, right? So you jump up from a 40 hour work week to 15 more hours a week and the numbers just skyrocket. And I think it's absolutely fascinating and also should be, should be worrisome. Like anybody who sees this article who's working that many hours should take notice, right? I mean, that it's concerning to me to see those stats. So going through this article, it looks like also in this study, working long hours has health impacts beyond just physical heart disease and stroke, that the interplay between your health and your work environment is so complex that mental health and stress can also be profoundly affected, although they didn't take that into account. The WHO chief Gosh, I can't pronounce his name. Dr. Tedros Adhanam 
Gebrasus called for employers and governments to work together because, quote, no job is worth the risk of stroke or heart disease. According to the study, it doesn't say how they got this number, but this is interesting. 9% of the global adult population are currently working these dangerously long hours. The WHO estimated up in a 9% increase from the year 2000. And they said this is still going up. That's super interesting. So in the last 20 years, 21 years, it's gone up 9%. This is also interesting, Whitney. The study covered the years 2000 to 2016, has not accounted for a great part of the gig economy's rise and the changed work from home situation during the pandemic. The WHO said they expect these numbers and the statistics in the study to go up after the pandemic pointing to the uncertainty involved in the new working arrangements and an increase in working hours. Frank Pega, who's a WHO officer, said the organization has evidence that when countries go into national lockdown, the number of work hours increase by 10% when countries go into lockdown. So apparently, according to their study, people are actually working more during the pandemic at home. And I wonder too, you know, the compound effect of this, because we've talked about social isolation here on the podcast and a lot of the really concerning mental health statistics of people being in isolation for the past 14 months. You combine that with maybe some people being overworked or expected to work longer hours because they're not commuting, right? So say, you're not commuting, you should work more. I really, almost as like a post-mortem study, and I'm sure there will be, When we are out of this pandemic, I think it's going to be really interesting to not only see how people are going to potentially regard their work-life balance differently, but also looking back on exactly what this pandemic has done to people and their relationship to work in general. You know, I'm kind of at a point too, Whitney, where, you know, after the unemployment is done in September, I'm not really quite sure what I'm going to do. There's sort of this feeling in my body of anxiety because I've been relying on that money to keep a roof over my head. But once that's done, I kind of feel like a little bit of panic when I think about it. Of I'm not really sure how I'm going to make up for that money. And I'm sure a lot of people are also in that same boat of, holy shit, what are we going to do? So yeah, my anxiety is not necessarily from working too many hours. It's wondering what I'm going to do for work when my unemployment is done. That's where my anxiety is right now. And that leads me to something else I wanted to bring up on this subject matter is I've thought about how you've applied for full-time work and you've been reflecting on that for at least a year now. And I too was thinking, and mostly in the beginning of 2020, I didn't have the clients that I have now. So I had like a lot of opening and, and not a lot of money. And at that time, I didn't even consider unemployment. I was just like in this state of panic that you're describing. And I started thinking like, wow, should I take on a part-time or full-time job. And I did apply and got very close to getting a more, not traditional, but a more structured part-time job that would be officially part-time. And that would have been the first part-time job that I had had since I think quitting Apple in 2012. So it was fascinating because a lot of emotions came up for me considering all these years that I've been freelance and a consultant and, you know, running, you know, making money in all these different creative ways. And it was just fascinating, like reflecting like, oh, wow, actually the amount of time that I'll put into this job versus how much I'm getting paid for it isn't what I'm used to. 
Because even when I don't work a lot or don't make a lot of money, usually my hourly rate is is fairly high. And a lot of more traditional part-time and full-time jobs, like their pay is not that great, especially if you're used to having a, this higher rate for your work. And, and that I really had to reflect on. So there was the issue of, of payment. It was like, okay, I'll have job security and I'll be paid enough to pay my bills, but I have grown accustomed to the idea of my time being worth so much more. And I started to worry that I was going to be way undervaluing myself. And part of that, Jason, is because I think the a bigger issue here that is part of this whole conversation is people are recognizing that CEOs are profiting off of paying their employees a very small amount of money relative to how much they make. And that's part of the larger issue here and, you know, capitalism in general and Neither one of us are anti-capitalism, but it's certainly worth examining, like, how can we make this more balanced? And reading all these articles about how the restaurant industry is shifting and really struggling to find employees, they are having to raise the wages because they don't know how else to attract employees because employees are, are sick of being paid shit wages and seeing their bosses or the CEOs of the big company, like making so much. And I remember feeling this way at Apple. Overall, the pros of working for Apple outweighed the cons of of the wage that I was making at the time. But (laughs) it was crazy because most Apple employees, at least in my experience, are very intelligent people. Tech savvy, I should say. And now once I left Apple and started running my own business, like I was paid so much more for that knowledge and experience than I was paid working directly for Apple in the retail space. And you're seeing, you're selling people products that are so much money. And I'm a stock owner and I have been since being an employee and you're seeing like all the money in the stock market. And you're just like doing the math in your head and knowing what you know about some of these big CEOs. And you're like, wow, Apple as a company and Google and you know, name it, McDonald's, like whatever, all these big companies, they're so profitable. And so why is it that their employees are paid so little? Like what would happen to their profits? You know, and I think there's a lot of fear and there's a big issue with the way things are structured. And and that's about all I, I know. It's a complicated subject matter of like, how do we restructure things? And can we even? But I love seeing these movements happen where people are saying, I deserve to be paid more at the risk of maybe not being hired. You know, like I think that's the big concern is it's hard to say no to things when when you're feeling financially insecure. And perhaps that's part of the blessing of unemployment is perhaps you can have the confidence to say, I'm going to turn down this job because I know I'm worth more money and I'm not willing to sacrifice my value just to make money when I could get what I need from the government, hopefully. But of course, as you're saying, that's not a long-term strategy. So that's my perspective and my experience. I wanted to go back to yours, Jason, because actually it was either today or yesterday in the past 24 hours, I saw a TikTok and it was this probably Gen Z boy saying like, it was a comparison 
and this is like one of the TikTok memes and it, it's like uh, the pros and the cons type of comparison style video. And he's like, pro, like I got a full-time job and con, I'm miserable because I'm working so much. I have to work. It was pro. I got a full-time job con. I have to work full-time hours. And you saw the smile on his face when he got the job. And then he was like huddled in a corner because he had to work so much, which ties into this article. And when I saw that video, I actually thought of you, Jason, because I know how many jobs you've applied for and how much you've been thinking about getting a full-time job. And I thought, could you actually handle mentally a full-time job? Like I'm asking you right now, could you handle working at least 40 hours a week, which is the standard? Now, granted, not all jobs are structured hourly, but I think the majority are these days, or they at least expect something in that vein. So do you think as much as you would enjoy the financial security of a full-time or even a part-time position, Jason, how would you feel being expected to work a certain amount of hours each day? I had a very deep conversation with my mom about this a few days ago because I was relaying to her that over the course of the last 14 months, I've had, you know, I've had some interesting opportunities. I've had a lot of really cool auditions that have come through my pipeline for commercials, for an Apple TV show. There was a audition for an insurance company where I sang. I mean, there's some cool stuff that's come down the pipeline. And, and part of that, there's been, I think at this point, easily over 50 jobs that I've sent my resume to. And, you know, I ain't no scrub. You know, I got 10 years of copywriting experience, 15 years of experience in the health and wellness as a chef and nutrition educator. I mean, I'm not, I look at my resume, I'm like, yeah, I have done some cool things in my career. I've had probably out of those 50 plus resumes, three or four opportunities. I'm trying to remember, right? So that's not, that's not even, that's not even what, 10%? That's maybe like a 5%? Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't want to say it's discouraging. That's not the appropriate word. I don't feel discouraged by that. But in every one of those interviews, and the last one that I had with was with a, I had a phone call with a advertising agency here in Los Angeles that wanted to bring me on as, as a writer. And, you know, it's kind of like auditioning, right? You go through certain channels, you talk to the HR person, you talk to the creative director, and then you wait and see. And if you don't hear anything, you assume you didn't get it. I mean, it's just kind of like some people will call, some people will email you back or call you and say, thank you for your time and interest. We selected a different candidate. Some people you don't hear back from at all. I was talking to my mom about this very question you just asked, Wit, which was, could you actually, my mom was like, could you actually go and do that? Because I haven't worked in a salaried office position since September, August or September, I quit in 2010. So it's been almost 11 years in the late summer, early fall since I've had a full-time position. I'm so used to working for myself after a full decade plus of doing it. I don't know that mentally I would enjoy, I could do it. Sure. Would my rebellious tendencies do well in that environment? Likely not. You know, and, and I also, on the other end of sending out 50 plus resumes, am just burnt on. I did send one last week, 
which was for a company called Rivian, which makes electric pickup trucks and electric SUVs. And I sent them, they had a, they had a writer position. They said, it's more of a storyteller than a writer. I said, I'm a good storyteller. I like words. I use good words. I'm a wordsmith. Let me apply for this. But I'm not doing it nearly at the clip I was, right, when the pandemic started, where I was just barrage of resumes out there. So it's one of those things of like, do I take a clue from the universe, if you will, or life that's like, hey, if you're sending out this many resumes and you're only getting a 5% response, that's pretty fucking low. I've been in the job market before. That's low. 5% response is low. It's exhausting to send out that many resumes. Like, I'm not, I'm not playing the tiny violin. It's exhausting. It really is. And then to get a 5% return, you're like, is this even worth it? But beyond that, I think I'm wired so independently now, Whitney, that it's this, it's this very difficult balancing act of I'm very rebellious and I'm very independent and almost 11 years of working for myself. There's that, right? But with that, you're, I, I feel like I'm constantly hustling for new projects, new sponsors, new gigs, constant hustle looking for work. The flip side, full-time salaried, the constant hustle is taken away. So that stress is gone, but the stress is replaced by a different kind of stress, which is me being beholden to someone else's schedule for me, depending on the business, logging my hours, checking in at certain times, doing Zoom meetings, doing creative meetings, you know, because everything I'm applying for is, is generally a writer, a copywriter or someone writing ads, things like that. So I know what's involved in that, having worked in you know the industry as long as I did. I know what's involved, right? So it's almost like either way, it's going to be stressful. Either way, it's going to be difficult and painful at times. What kind of stress and what kind of pain do you want is the question. The pain of the hustle and not knowing where the fuck the money's coming from, or the pain of being beholden to a structure that maybe you don't really agree with and don't feel good about. And I'm not saying this to be a nihilist. There is pain in their struggle either way. Which one do you want? Yeah, I've reflected on this many times over the years. And I've gone through waves with it all. Right now, I'm in a wave where, where things have been working out. And I don't know how long that'll last. Because in 2020, like I said, there were multiple periods of tight financial times and me getting more creative with my savings and my assets to pay the bills. And I think it's tricky in general and there are pros and cons to it all. And there's so many different ways in which people generate income. I mean, we talked about the show Generation Hustle. It's so easy to judge people who find very creative and sometimes deceitful or harmful ways to make money. But when I was watching that show, Jason, I kept thinking of, first of all, I can't relate to that level of desperation. And second of all, I think every human being is just trying to make ends meet. And some people are willing to do that in unusual or illegal ways. And and there's there's so many fine lines between what's illegal too and what people get away with. And it's fascinating in general to just examine money. I mean, people like right now, as I've talked about, actually, I don't think I've talked about this in a recent episode. I talked about this in an episode we recorded, but that won't come out for several months. So I'll talk about it now because this episode is coming out more timely than that other episode. I have been investing in cryptocurrency and just putting in a little money here and there and 
I just got fascinated with it and I wanted to be in the game. And Jason has talked about with me, I think a little bit on that podcast episode I referenced, but also privately how you're not sure if you want to invest in crypto because of the emotional roller coaster. And the same thing can be true with the stock market. I know you and I have discussed this, Jason, and I have some stock and and I'm fortunate that two of my biggest two investment companies do very well. And I, over many years, it's, it's rare that they don't do well. And then I invested in one company that's never done that well, but I believe in them long-term. So it's like, I'm, it's worth the ride, hopefully. And then I recently in the past, last week, I invested in another company because I saw so many people talking about it. I was like, I'll put in, I'll buy a share of it. And then another company a few months ago. So I'll sometimes just buy one share and see what happens. And that actually one time really paid off for me. A few years ago, I bought a share in Tesla. I think I just put in one share and now it's worth 10 times what I paid for it. And one share split. So now I have multiple shares of Tesla. So it was like, I never expected it. And I was comfortable taking that risk. And that's what I've learned about the stock market with limited knowledge of it. It's like, okay, I believe in these companies. I see other people investing in them. Like I, I kind of just get a feel for it. And then I take my risk and I haven't had any problems with it. And now I'm exploring that with cryptocurrency. But first of all, putting money into cryptocurrency is truly an experiment. And I view it more as a gamble than an investment. I understand that it's extremely risky and more volatile than the stock market, but it also has some similarities. And just a lot of the things I described about my stock market experience and research is very similar with crypto. You can go read about different coins and you can watch and look at the history and read the news and generally play it on the safer side. But, you know, as of today, on, on May 17th, 2021, we're in a weird time with crypto over the weekend. <laughs> It was a complete roller coaster. And a lot of that was actually related to Elon Musk. And it's fascinating, Jason, speaking of like the mental health sides of cryptocurrency, people get so divided, so worked up. There are so many different perspectives on it. It's incredibly overwhelming. But I'm fascinated by it. So my fascination and interest in it overrides the overwhelm. But I would imagine for you, Jason, like you might need to be somebody that puts money in and walks away and doesn't even look at it, right? For your mental health. Because if you're like me, I'm checking crypto out of curiosity multiple times a day just to see the ups and downs and then just try to decide, do I want to put more in or, or I haven't taken any out yet, but hopefully that's not too hard of a process. And I, that all kind of ties into the jobs that we have too, because, or that just the income streams, you know, speaking of the stock market and crypto, like you can be a, a day trader and you can, I've known people that have made money purely off of day trading and the stress involved with that is, sounds really intense. You have to be a certain person to want to do that. You have to be a certain person that wants to work with clients. I mean, given what you were describing, Jason, I have a, a certain amount of anxiety almost every single day 
because I have a number of clients and I often wonder, do they feel like I'm doing enough for them? Do they feel like I'm doing a good job? I have this sense that they could fire me at any moment's notice, especially with California laws, like, you know, most of which I'm, I'm operating under. The general rule in California is you can just be let go of most jobs with very little notice from what I understand. And so like, to your point, Jason, there's like, I never know how long I'm going to make with a client. I never, unless we have an agreed upon contract. But as you've talked about before, even contracts can be broken and you can have issues with those things too. And the whole thing, I guess, making money, I have like maybe a high functioning anxiety experience with it that I'm used to it as to your point, Jason, I'm used to going through all of these highs and lows and it's not that bad for me because I think the ability to take a day off and say, you know what, all of the work can wait. That's what I have right now in my life. And it is actually very common for me, Jason, to feel fatigued for four hours of the day. And that is often in the window of that nine to five time frame. And it's really hard for me mentally because I still operate under that traditional work hour structure. That's where my mind is at because of all the programming that most of us have had. So even though I have the flexibility to work basically whenever I want, I still feel like I should be working during the certain hours. And when I'm tired during that time, when I feel like unable to get work done, I feel a lot of stress. But to your point, I love the ability to say, all right, I feel pressure to do this, but I don't have to. It can wait and I can take a nap. I can lay down and watch TikTok videos. I can make myself lunch. I can go grocery shopping and I can do whatever I need to take care of myself. And that's my big reason why I don't know if working specific hours would make sense. I think I would end up really struggling as I did. And one of the big reasons I quit working corporate when I worked for Apple, I couldn't stand the hours. I was literally, I had a panic attack one day that led me to quitting. I I was just like, I can't do this. I can't like get on the schedule, the sleep schedule to make this work and like show up when I feel like shit. And like all of that, you know, corporate pressure I was like crushed under. And then other jobs, like I noticed, as I've talked about many times on the show, that I generally want to wake up. I mean, right now I wake up around 9 a.m. And like that's not going to work with a traditional job. Like you generally have to report to that job by 9 a.m. And then I've also worked a job, one of my, I think it was full time, one of my jobs, I worked the night shift and didn't report until I think 6 p.m which was really cool for a night owl like me, but it threw off my entire sleep schedule and it threw off a lot of my socializing, you know, cause I was sleeping until I don't even remember what my hour, my sleeping hours were, but like the times that I was awake, most people were asleep and like that can really affect your friendships and romantic relationships and travel schedule, all these factors so after all that experience, Jason, I think 
similar to you, that's when I started to pursue working for myself. And I'm curious if you've reflected on that, Jason, because you've, you've talked about like what the past 11 years have been like for you, but do you remember why you decided to stop working traditional jobs? Well, to go on record, it, it was the second time I did this because in 2005, before I moved out from Detroit to the West Coast, I had left a traditional job then. I'd saved a bunch of money and went traveling for that summer and fall and then ended up in California at the end of the year. I went back to an office job because the catering business that I had had closed and I had just no money. There was just no prospects. So the reason I went back to this last office job that I quit in September of 2010 was out of necessity because the catering business I had had with my business partner folded, right? And it was like a holy shit, what am I going to do now? So that particular gig, well, I left it for two reasons. Number one, and I don't use this term lightly, I use this term very intentionally. He was a megalomaniac. He was, and I've worked over the course of my career, I've worked for two people that were horrible bosses. I mean, horrible in the sense of screaming at me, calling me names, calling me at inappropriate hours to do things that were inconsequential, like bad, bad behavior, right? So one of the reasons was I couldn't stand working for this guy anymore because he was not a mentally stable human being. He was, it was outrageous how he treated his employees, not just me, right? Because it was one of those things of, oh, you know, I wonder if he just has an issue with me. He treated everyone with such disrespect. It was like, I, this is a toxic environment that I must leave. That was number one. Number two, at the same time that I was working in that job, I was on the side, part-time in evenings and weekends, personal chefing. I had just begun personal chefing for celebrities. So I had this, I remember I had, I had a moment of decision. I was at, I was at Bhakti Fest in 2010. And I remember I had a decision to make because it was like, I have this full-time gig. It paid really well at the time, right? It was a nice salary. The boss is horrible. He's a psychopath. But if I leave, I don't know how the chefing thing is going to work out. So it was honestly a leap of faith, Whitney, because I could not continue to do both of them. Like physically, I had to pick and I picked the chefing. And luckily, you know, that led to working with some other celebrities and making food for them and get to work on movie sets. And it was, it was a decision that I, I chose to invest in myself. Do you know what I'm saying? It was like, I don't know if the chefing thing is going to take off, but it did and it worked out. So it was for the two reasons. I had to leave that toxic work environment and I also had to choose. I was at a fork in the road. It was like, are you going to do chefing or are you going to just like be a writer? So it was for both of those reasons. But I bring up the, the megalomaniac boss because part of my reticence to go back to a full-time salaried position with a company is I don't want to work for an asshole again. And you do not know who you're going to get. It's sort of like when you move into a house, and I say this very intentionally, like what neighbors you're going to get. Like, <laughs> you know, if I, if, I, <laughs> if I had known about the situation with my neighbors, probably wouldn't have moved into this house. Different conversation. But it's kind of like that with a job. You can't psychologically assess every single one of your coworkers or bosses before you get a job. You just have to kind of trust that they're going to be respectful, decent human beings. But having been in a situation, as I mentioned, with two people that were just 
psychotic bosses. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. It was like, I kind of want to kill you. No, I'm I'm not exaggerating, Whitney. Like, I, I'm going to figure out a way to, like, have you killed. Like, you're a horrible person. Like, I don't want to be in that situation ever again. You know, and I have a policy, you know, when I take on clients or have taken on clients, if I detect that there's any energy of, you know, disrespect, demandingness, belittling me, I don't give a shit how much money you're paying me. I'm not going to work with you, right? I've learned my lesson in that regard too. So part of my, you know, is like, I don't know that I want to go back is, yeah, I can't work for like another horrible person again. Like it's such, I'm actually like getting feelings in my body, remembering some of the situations with this person, because it was just so difficult to deal with a human being like that. Who's paying your bills, essentially. (laughs) Have you ever dealt with a situation like that? offhand, maybe not to the degree of horror that I just described, but have have you had a situation where you're like, I can't believe I have to work with this human being, whether it was a coworker or a boss? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially in the entertainment industry. Oh, I mean, it was rough. I, I think I've talked about that. I have. My transition away from working in the film industry, I've talked about in a few episodes, especially towards the beginning of our show. And it was really disheartening because I had all sorts of weird work environments. And at the time, Jason, like I just thought I had to work those jobs to A, pay the bills, but B, in order to work my way up in the industry. And I put up with a lot of really bad treatment. And it's really sad because it's so commonplace. And a lot of people just think like, I don't have a choice. I have to do this in order to get where I want to go. And that breaks my heart to hear that. I mean, I had a lot of weird like employee experiences, like colleagues. There were a couple companies in in particular. And then actually my first official full-time job I got fired from and I felt so much shame. But that was, I mean the management was horrible and they just blamed it all on me. And I remember actually the going into the office when they fired me, I cried and I was like, you know, I want to work on this. I want to get better. And they didn't give me another chance. And I remember looking back on that job feeling like they just never supported me in the ways that I needed. And maybe I just wasn't a good fit clearly, but they didn't take responsibility for their actions. And the work environment was so awful just in the energy around it. Like sometimes it's not like they they treated me bad, like a lot of what you're describing. Like I don't I don't feel like I was mistreated, but I wasn't supported. And I recognized in hindsight that I need to feel supported and valued and just overall appreciated and and people understanding that not everybody works in the same way. I mean, this is the thing uh, specifically when it comes to our mental health. You know, I've recognized over time that my way of working is based in self-expression. I need freedom. I need flexibility. And actually, Apple was phenomenal at that. Like, Apple overall was a phenomenal company, at least in the years that I worked for them. I still believe that they are, but I haven't, I don't know what the work environment is like these days. It seems good though. I will say that every time I go into an Apple store, I love talking to the employees and like, you know, we have discussions around what it's like to work there. And generally it seems to be about the same as it was when I was there. And for the most part, Jason, like they really 
supported us and and would hear us and like there was a lot of like good culture with Apple which is why I worked there for six and a half years you know like I stuck around because of all of that and I got so much value whereas like a lot of the jobs I had in the film industry it wasn't so much it was like there was the ability to manipulate you because people knew how badly you wanted the money or the opportunities. And so it was always like, hey, if you don't want this, someone else is waiting in line for it. So you got to do whatever. And I, oh gosh, that makes my blood boil. Like just that disposable element and the things that people will do because they feel like if they don't do it, then somebody else will do it. So they might as well do it. That just like makes my blood boil. And that also leads me to, Jason, like thinking about these things. I think about also the experience as a woman and how women in general, and then of course, you know, people of of color, non-white people, like they go through all sorts of situations too, based on who they are, what they look like, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, like so many factors, age, people that struggle because of that and the way that they're treated and the, that feeling that if they don't say yes to this, like somebody else will just come along and it's a privilege to have the job because most people that are like them wouldn't get the job or, you know, all those weird emotions that go into it. And I'm fascinated too. There, it seems that there's been such a rise of online I'm going to use this word lightly, but because I don't know what else to use it for, but online sex work has grown a lot or work in those fields. I mean, the number of videos I've seen on TikTok, Jason, about women talking about how they sell their used underwear online to make money and how much money they can make from a pair of dirty underwear. No judgment around it, but it just makes me think, wow, like, you, it's like you see the way people talk about it. And I imagine that somebody is watching those videos going, oh, I hate my full-time job. I hate working at McDonald's or wherever else. Like if I can make all this money just by selling my used underwear, like I'd be so much happier. And then they get into that world of like, it's basically sex work, right? Like they're in, like to me, the women empowerment side of it, like just wonders about it. Again, like I believe in a woman's, ability to choose what she wants to do with her body. But how is that playing into the manipulation of women and, and, and sexuality as a whole is the big thing. Like when you participate in things like that, you're encouraging. It's like paint, voting with your dollar, you know, like and what is it for our long-term mental health that you're participating in a system where women are seen as sexual objects that, you know, smell a certain way and and men are, and it's probably not just men buying their underwear, right? But like people are buying their underwear to sexualize them and fetishize women. And like, we have so many issues with rape right now and human trafficking. And it's like, I wonder so much about how there's grooming involved too, which is a big issue. And how online sex work, especially when it's talked about on platforms like TikTok that are viewed by so many young people, I think some women in general get drawn into sex work, whether it's starting an OnlyFans account or doing, you know, you know, there's a lot of sugar daddy uh, talk on, on TikTok as well about like, ooh, it's so easy to make money. I just have to go out to dinner with this guy. And there's like speculation around that, like this whole industry of women that are they lying about what they're doing to get the money just to convince other people to become 
a part of the sugar daddy industry and like that whole grooming look at it. I mean, it, it can feel really disturbing, especially when I dig into all the research about how kids are impacted by technology. And there's a lot of awful things that happen to children online. And so while it might be empowering for another, you know, an adult to participate in the sugar daddy world, to make an OnlyFans account and show their body, like maybe they're making lots of money and maybe that empowers them. But if that is being glamorized as like an easy way to make money, younger kids are susceptible to that. They're seeing that and thinking, oh, I should do that too. And oh, like people live like kids, like maybe I should capitalize on that. You know what I mean? And it's like, I think all of this is a ripple effect of what we've been talking about, Jason. Like people are looking for ways to make money because the capitalistic corporate world has worn away at us so much. So all of this is connected in my perspective because when people get desperate, especially in terms of their mental health, they're willing to do things that maybe don't fully sit right with them. And they think it's temporary and they think it's only affecting them. But I don't think it's just affecting them because it's perpetuating these, just like we saw in the Generation Hustle documentaries, like one of the big points I saw, I think it was in that episode, Jason, that you watched about this kid, he was, I remember he was like buying the water skis and all that stuff. And he was working in the town with that uh, club. And, you know, he's this teenager making all this money and like in the music industry. And it seems so impressive. And actually, the more I talk about it, it wasn't that episode. It was, it was a different one. It was the Detroit one that I don't know if you ended up watching yet, but it was about this one guy hustling in Detroit. And they interviewed somebody in the law enforcement or a detective or something like that. And he was saying like, that guy might believe that he's not harming anyone, but he actually is in ways that he might not even realize. And it was basically about the whole ripple effect that this one person's actions. So while it may seem innocent, it may seem empowering. It may seem like no one's getting hurt. Any people are just benefiting or the only people getting hurt are like, the CEOs or whatever, but like there's a whole ripple effect to that. And one of the reasons is that now people have to build in fail safes. It's like stores that have to, to bump their prices up because things are being stolen. You might think you're going to the store and stealing something and they can afford to lose that product, but now people have to calculate the amount of things that are stolen into their prices and the prices go up as a result, which hurts everybody else who's shopping there. And that's my whole point is like, we really, we need, when it comes to the way that we make money, ultimately, we have to think outside of ourselves and we also have to look at the long term. So if you're putting on the oxygen mask first, you have to think like, all right, what are the long-term pros and cons of this? And then who else is affected by my decision to do this type of work? You know, am I, is this truly short-term? And if it's short-term and it's causing some harm to me or others, can you truly justify it? If it's long-term, is this part of your life's purpose? And I guess, Jason, I'd love to hear from you before we wrap today. Like, what is your long-term hopes with the work that you do? You know, what would your ideal scenario be given all the experience that you've had working for yourself and working for others? And 
Yeah. I'm just curious about like the long, long term. Cause right now I imagine you're focused a bit on the short term, even though you have long-term financial goals that I know of, there is like, to your point that the short term insecurity, and sometimes that overrides our ability to think long-term. So where are you at with that? I feel like I'm still figuring it out, to be honest with you. I don't want to go back to what I've been doing. I don't feel like that brings me joy anymore. And I think out of everything that I've done, just kind of experimenting with new new things, I'm really enjoying writing jingles. I'm really enjoying being a songwriter. And, you know, the few, the handful of gigs that I've received over the past month has been great. Uh, Again, I don't know if that's going to morph or mutate into something full-time. I intend on marketing it and getting it out into the world. Absolutely. When I'm done with this batch of songs, I really want to just put it out there and see what happens. So I like songwriting. I like making jingles. I think it's a, a great use of my abilities as a musician, a singer, a writer, you know, the writing element of it. And I feel very satisfied. I like working with animals. The The animal rescue that I've done over the past year, working with different organizations has been very satisfying. So kind of in my mind, Whitney, it would be some sort of hybrid between maybe doing some songwriting work for hire for projects and either, you know, volunteering or working with some sort of animal rescue, like working directly with animals, not just tangentially, but I really, I want to physically support animals somehow. So right now, those are the two things that I feel like there's some joy there and there's some deep sense of satisfaction in, in what I do. So I don't know what, again, what that'll turn into. And it may be that part of my desire to move and go somewhere is to have a lower cost of living so that I I can do those things. Because the reality is, even if I was doing songwriting part-time and animal rescue part-time, as an example, since you asked, if I was living in a place where, you know, the expenses, the housing expenses, you know, mortgage payment, whatever, isn't that high, then I don't have to rely on doing another thing on top of all that just to have the money in the bank to pay, right? So, so you know, one of the big reasons I want to leave LA is because, you know, the cost of living here is not what I want it to be. And I want it to be lower so I can focus on what I want to do and not be freaked out every month with how much I need to pay just to survive and live, right? So part of my thing is, can I be a songwriter from anywhere? Yeah. Can I do this podcast with you from anywhere? We've proven that over the past year. Can I do animal rescue? Are there animals that need help and safety and support every, everywhere? Yes. So that's my long answer to your question, as I feel like music and working with animals and supporting them or rescuing them or caring for them, that's the vision moving forward. I don't know what it'll mutate or turn or evolve into, but that's what I'm feeling in my heart right now. Yeah. So uh, speaking of, I don't know, healing, supporting, we have product shout outs, don't we? We got some product. What do you have today, Whitney? You just, you just dangled something in front of the camera. I couldn't tell what it was though. What are you shouting out today? Well, I'm actually going to shout out four separate products and do this uh, a shout out category. Why? Because I have been going through a process of tidying, I suppose. And (laughs) one thing that I've been doing for years that I've actually been re-examining, Jason, I don't think you do this. And it feels kind of embarrassing to admit that I do this, to be honest. But I save empty containers of things so that I can show them in a video or photo if I haven't yet. 
So when I'm sent products for free from brands, there's usually a hope, sometimes an expectation that I'm going to promote them some way. And uh, one thing I've realized lately is that I just energetically rarely want to post on traditional social media. So I really enjoy doing the shout outs here because the podcast brings me the greatest joy. And I've been going through all my stuff in general, Jason, and I'm like, I'm finally going to shout out all these brands and that way I can recycle the containers. So what I would like to start doing with my shout outs to move through them, because as you'll see over upcoming episodes, I've been saving a good amount of products and I'm going to lump them into categories so I can move through them fast. So today I'm going to share four different beverages that I really enjoy and some of which you may really enjoy too. I want to actually start with a brand. I don't know if you tried, Jason, because they were sent in like um, a product box with like a number of different items. And I I really feel like you would have loved them. Did you get these, Jason? First of all, if you're listening to audio only, go over to our YouTube channel for the section of the show. It's in the final hour, last probably 10 or 15 minutes of the episode. And we'll be doing this in, in ongoing so that you can see the visuals. But you can also go to our show notes at wellevator.com, which is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, and scroll down to the resource section to just get the links to things that we talk about. How would you pronounce this, Jason? Amaru Mayu. Cool name, right? It's really cool. And the packaging is insane. So these are incredible fruit juices, 100% natural flavors, no preservatives or added sugar. They're super fruit juices. This one is the apple and camu camu, which is from the Amazon, handpicked in Peru. It's got vitamin C. It's immune boosting. Ooh, it's actually really cool because it shows you a map of where the products came from too, which I think is really smart for us being mindful about where things come from. And this company, though, is based in California. So hopefully it's not cultural appropriation. I don't, I don't get that vibe from it. But I do encourage you to go and do a little bit more research than I did now that I'm reflecting on that. And then this other flavor is apple juice and Baruti. Is that what this is? Kokona? Baruti is an Amazonian superfruit with omegas, vitamin A, and C, and minerals. And I don't know what Kokona is, but this is part of the fun of trying products like this because it, it opens up your mind, your eyes to products that aren't in traditional, you know, American forms for us at least, or, you know, not common in the American food. So anyways, this is the first product, really delicious, like great packaging and the flavors were insane. And I generally like sugar-free drinks. So that was a bit of a splurge for me. The other one, which is all stained. <laughs> this is so good. This is a company called Apray. Jason, you're, why are you laughing? <laughs> because I'm imagining you getting it out of the box and being so excited about it. You ravenously tore the top open and just chugged it. And this is the after effect of you just downing it in one. Did you down it in one fell swoop? Be honest. I probably did. It was really good. Have you tried this brand, Jason? No, I've heard of it, though. I've heard of Apres, but I've never I've never had it before. 
It's really good. It is like a protein drink or they call it a plant-based replenishment. It's got 14 grams of protein MCTs. This is a sea salt chocolate and it's dairy-free, gluten-free, soy-free and 100% vegan. It was lovely. And they say you can use it to replenish after waking, sweating, playing, working and doing. I loved this. I would definitely buy that again. Next up, I have coffee. This brand is really neat. I think I might even have a discount code. If I do, I will put that in the description. Full disclosure, I'm an affiliate, but as an affiliate, oftentimes I get discount codes. So if I do, I will leave one for Explorer Cold Brew. I love this brand. This is why I became, actually, I think I'm technically an ambassador for them. I think they are just so awesome. Originally, I got sent this kit of all these different sized cold brew, or actually, I'm sorry, they're all the same size, but they have four different types. And what's neat about them is they're all in glass jars and they're concentrate, so you can travel with them. That's why they're called Explorer Cold Brew. And they have a low caffeine, a no caffeine, a regular caffeine, and a high caffeine, which is really neat. And it's owned by a young guy who's really into traveling and really into coffee. And so you could actually take these with you in a backpack, in your car, obviously, and then just combine it with milk or water to make a really delicious beverage or just combine it with water and have it black. And then they started making a larger size for people that mainly wanted to drink it at home. And again, it comes in those four different caffeine options, which makes them really unique. And it's um, from Brooklyn and it's all organic. And one last brand, Jason, I'm fairly sure that you have tried this product. Royal Leaf Tea. You got one of these, right? This is delicious. We mentioned them very briefly in another episode of like a month or two ago. And this is phenomenal tea. I love the design. I love that it's in glass jars. This one has honey. I didn't drink this one, but this is the original and it's honey free. It's also organic. It's caffeinated guayasa tea. Is, am, am I pronouncing that right, Jason? It's guayusa. Guayusa. Thank you. Okay. And it's all about sustained energy, enhanced focus, and enriched health. This is made in New York, and it's just really delicious tea. The big advantage of it is it's high in antioxidants. It's stimulating to your brain, which can help with concentration and boosting your energy. And it's high-quality tea leaves and the nice glass bottle. And I just enjoyed the vibe of the brand. The guy that runs it is just super cool, similar to Explorer. So I always get excited when the the founders of a company, speaking of which, going back to one of the main themes of this episode is supporting amazing companies that are kind and passionate and really trying to do something good for the world. So that's my drink shout out, Jason. I can't imagine that you have four products to shout out, but I could be wrong. What do you got for us today? I don't have four, but I do have something that has been part of my recovery and nutrition regimen for uh, five months. I typically have a pretty solid, consistent supplementation routine with things like D3, K2, B12, folate, etc., but after my motorcycle accident and my subsequent recovery, which I'm 
still in with physical therapy. I've talked about it. I needed to introduce some other nutrients for the bone and cartilage healing to make sure that the clavicle and the shoulder repaired itself. So a mutual friend of ours named Katie recommended this to me after my accident. She was checking in on me. This is a brand called Pure Synergy, and they have a product called Bone Renewal. I've had some of their greens powders in the past. I didn't even know they made a bone supplement. This is really cool. It's fully plant-based nutrients for optimal bone health. And here's what's in there. There's vitamin D3, there's K1, there's calcium, magnesium, silica phytase, strontium boron, vanadium. That sounds like a superhero power. What were his claws made of? Vanadium. There's a whole bunch of plant extracts that I can't really pronounce. Uh, there's bamboo, there's algae, there's Cissus quilandricus, there's wasabi rhizome. Apparently, all of this is a nourishing synergistic experience that is supposed to build your bone density. And for me, having shattered my clavicle and broken two bones, ribs rather, I needed to be able to mend those bones quickly. So I've been taking this for five months. It's been awesome. The last x-ray that I went in and got looked good. So apparently it's working well. So shout out to Pure Synergy. Thank you for your bone renewal formula. Again, I bought this on my own. They didn't send this to me, but it's part of my regimen of making sure, again, that my bones and my cartilage and ligaments are healing because I do have I do have a goal. And the specific goal is that by my birthday of this year, which is July 6th, 2021, my aim is to have my shoulder back to full function like where there's nothing I can't do. So I'm working my way back to getting as damn close to 100% as possible by my, my birthday. So the supplements are a big part of that. So shout out to Pure Synergy. Thanks for helping me with my recovery. Appreciate it. With that, dear listener, we're wrapping this episode of This Might Get Uncomfortable. Once again, thank you for listening and supporting and sharing this. We always love to see your shares and your comments on social media. And of course, visit our website. It's wellevator.com that Whitney mentioned earlier, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can find the show notes and the transcript for this episode and all of our previous 200 plus episodes for all the links and resources, including the article we mentioned to kick off this episode about really long work hours killing people. <laughs> so if you want to dive more into that, we'll have that in the show notes and the transcript. If you want to shoot us a message, we always love hearing from you with feedback, suggestions. You can email us. It's hello at wellevator.com. That goes directly to Whitney and myself. And you can also direct message us in our Facebook group. We have a great Wellevator Facebook group and our DMs on Instagram at Wellevator. Till then, we love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for the support. And we'll be back with more episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with our guests. And we'll see you for more uncomfortableness then. Take care. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.